for our scripture reading this morning. Let's turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as, <clears throat> not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. It's good to be here again this morning. I, I always say that, but it really is. I, I look forward to being together. I spend a lot of time alone studying, but the exciting part is coming together and sharing that with you. Hopefully it's exciting for you too, but it's exciting for me. Andrew and Hannah, would you guys like to introduce your little one? <laughs> well, he, he is here though. Zane. Amen. And we look forward to next week for another, another little one joining us. <clears throat> We've been, as you know, in Philippians. And um, if you want to throw that first slide, there we go. We're into the second chapter. We see, um, yeah, turn there in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. As you scan down that chapter, you remember what we've been doing. Paul has been encouraging the believers in Philippi, even in, in chapter 1, to love one another, to seek harmony with one another. And he offers them, and this is now into chapter 2, what, remember what we looked at last week, the example of Christ's humility. We see that in verses 6 through 11. In verse 5 he says, you can see it in, on your page, think this way among yourselves as you think in Christ. We spent some time on that last week. But basically because of your connection with Jesus in salvation, you now have the ability to seek and find a mind of humility in your relationships. And then the hymn that Paul related to them beautifully displayed Christ's perfect humility. Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, humanity. He then humbled himself to the point of death, even a criminal's death. We then saw in that hymn that God exalted him to the place above every other name and that at his name, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one and only, 
everyone will be obliged to bow to him and confess to him as Lord. Now there's some awesome theological truths and things to study in that passage, but we remember that Paul's reason for including it was to challenge the reader to change their attitude. And we, we said this phrase several times, as, as we abide in him, we can adopt the humble obedient attitude of Christ in our relationships. So we're coming in then to verse 12 this week, and we're not going to make it real far, but I hope that's okay with you. Um, JD talked about the, the milk and the meat. We're going we're gonna to hit some of the meat, and um, hopefully that, that makes sense and that works with us all, but the milk is good too. We wash it down with a cold glass of milk. I'm going to remember that. We wash it down with a cold glass of milk. I like that. Let's ask God to meet us as we look at this passage this morning. Father, thank you that you are here, that we don't really have to ask you to be here. You're in our presence. I pray that it's <laughs> exciting for you too as we look at your, your word. We miss things. We, we do it imperfectly, but we come because of you. We come for you, in worship of you. Let us understand a little bit of truth this morning that we can bring into our daily lives, that we can be encouraged by, that we can be challenged by. We need this, and thank you for being here and working in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're not in Philippians 2 um, and you got a Bible, you can, you can turn there. There's some pew Bibles there if you didn't bring a Bible. Um, <clears throat> we're coming off of that Christ hymn then as we look at chapter, or excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 2 and continuing. Paul continues his practical guidance and guidelines for the Christians in Philippi specifically, and then of course, by extension, Christians around the world. Now, if we go back clear to chapter 1, verse 27. Um, we see that Paul exhorted them to be citizens of what? Citizens of heaven, Christian citizens, um, not so much of Rome or of anywhere else as priority. And that's what he's going, that's what he's continuing as we look at verse 12. Citizens of heaven, what does it look like to live as a Christian? You see, therefore, beginning verse 12, this is transitionary as well as stating that he's going to base his practical advice on this example of Christ that we have in the previous section, this hymn of Christ. So as those Philippian Christians, as they, as they reflected on the humility and then the exaltation of Christ, this would lead them in their church to reconciliation and harmony in their community. So too with us. Reflecting on Christ, following His example, we grow in love and in unity. So look at that. Verse 12 says, Dear friends, or my beloved, He continues to remind these Christians of His partnership with them and His love for them. We see that in verse 8 of chapter 1. We see it again in 4.1. Paul clearly stating that He has affection for them. And with this as His basis, He reaches out to them and offers guidance and truth. Even though he could, have, he could have pulled the apostle card as his authority, he affirms them and exhorts them as deep friends of his. Of course, God's word is authoritative, isn't it? Regardless of our relationship with him, 
but love reaches farther than law. And he goes on to affirm their desire and their practice of obedience. Check that out. Remember, as you read that section about the obedience of these Christians, the obedience of Christ as he humbled himself a few verses prior. The same word there is used about Christ. I think this affirmation of these believers is also a reminder for them to keep it up, regardless of whether Paul was there or Paul was absent. Keep up the obedience. And then we see that in verse 12, continuing through verse 12, he takes on a little bit more commanding tone and he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what you need to continue to do in obedience. Work out your salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read that phrase, what does it mean? This statement, work out your salvation, it could be alarming, depending on how we understand it. Do we need to affect, that is, do we need to bring about our salvation? Does our conduct, as the passage is speaking to, does that change the status or the realness of our salvation? By the way, what is our salvation? Does our obedience make a difference in our life and our salvation now and to come? Well, there are other questions you might have. Some of those you've worked through as you think about that phrase. And I would love it if each of you could stand up and share what comes to mind and what you think of as you, as you read, work out your salvation. We can't exactly do that, but I would like you to take a couple of minutes and share with your neighbor or a small group, two or three of you, what comes to your mind when you read that phrase? I know you've read it before, most of you, but even as we read it this morning, what does it mean to you? What do you think the Bible is saying to us? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or what doesn't it mean? Take a few minutes right now and do that with each other. This is good. This is good. It sounds like it's going really well. All kinds of heresy being talked. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not, I, I really, as always, I wish I could could hear what's in your what your, your thoughts are, and I'm sure it's all kinds of wonderful things. Um, I hope that I can help us think about this a little further today. Many of these things are things you guys know or have thought about, but. I, I do want to take this opportunity to remember 
that each of us individually is responsible for the Word of God in our lives, the revealed truth of God, to work at interpreting that and then, of course, applying it in our context, in your life. That doesn't exclude the corporate time together. That's why we come together. We need that to help us work it out, to help us work together on what it means. We need each other. We need those who have gone before us. That's why we have books and videos and so many things to help us as we discern the Word of God. That's one of the beauties of the body of Christ is digging, to, digging together in the Word. And as was pointed out, sometimes we don't agree, do we? But that should lead us to humility, not to division. That should lead us to recognizing that we may not agree, but there are things, of course, we do agree on. We're talking about interpreting and applying the Word of God in our lives. That's what we're here to do. So as we come to this passage, be a Berean. That is, study it. Think about it. You keep working on it. And you're welcome to tell me, if you disagree or what things I missed, uh, listen to this passage now. Look at it in your, your Bible again one more time. Verse 12, I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. It may differ a little bit, but this will help us as we dive into it. It says, Dear friends, you always followed my instruction when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Keep in mind, Paul is instructing the whole group, the church. We have this continual theme of unity, of seeking harmony, love in Philippi and beyond. Clearly, this salvation, though, begins with me, with the individual. Salvation is personal. We need to think about this salvation for a, a little bit. Now, salvation is a large topic, and at some point we may take it on as a topic of study and get more detail on it. But for now, and more briefly, what is salvation and exactly what are we to be after according to this passage? When you think about salvation, I hope you think about it along these lines. In the basic sense, it's a gift of God. It's graciously given to those who believe. Salvation is transformational in our daily life and forever. We are saved from the power of sin, saved from death, and given hope of eternal life instead of eternal death. Now as we think about the whole package of salvation and as we study it in Scripture, one thing to point out is a human element in this process and a God element in the process. There continues to be differences of opinion as to what the extent of that human element is or that decision-making that's involved in this process of salvation and what the extent of God's part is. What does he do or doesn't do? I don't want to get too deep into that, and that's really not the topic here for this morning. But who is responsible now to answer our question of how to work out our salvation? Who is responsible for the fundamentals of being saved, of, of salvation? Without even looking beyond Philippians, we notice one six. Sounds familiar. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So here we see that God gets the credit for doing this work of salvation. Starting and completing. 
Notice Romans 1.16, to quote another one, there's, there's so many verses, of course, that, that speak to salvation, but notice what Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The good news of Christ is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God bringing about salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. Well, here we see that human element enter, belief or faith. John 3.16, to quote another more common verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and who did He give Him to? Whoever believes in Him. Now, belief is recognizing what God is offering, recognizing that as reality, the truth that's needed for my life. And then to trust Him as Savior. And then He saves. Ephesians 2.8. Again, we're using these verses that many of you know. For you are saved by grace through faith. There's the belief. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not from works so that no one can boast. Salvation then is fundamentally affected. It comes apart, it com- or excuse me, comes about through our belief, but it is God's gift and His work. It's His doing. Now there's more to think about along this line of, of us believing and God doing absolutely. Um, what other things are involved? Are there other things that we do in that decision-making process? Again, I'm not going to take time for those this morning. But at very least, we need to see salvation as through faith, belief, and then enacted, affected, coming about by God's grace, His loving work in us. Now, basically what we're talking about up to this this point, as it concerns salvation, we're talking about justification. You've heard that word before, some, some of you. It's a foundational element in salvation. Justification means made just, made right. The act of justifying is done by God alone. God gives us a position of acceptance, placing us in Christ, giving us eternal life and freedom from the bondage of sin now. Listen to Romans 4. Five, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, your faith, is credited to you as righteousness. Now here we see that again through faith, not works. God justifies the sinner graciously. We should say at this point, thank you God and praise to God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. So in one sense then, salvation is complete. Catch that. 100% God's provision for us. As you are saved, that is as you are justified and placed in Christ. And by the way, when you're placed in Christ, you're placed into His church, His local body. You're secure. Catch this. That truth never improves it never advances so as we are called upon to work out our salvation 
I don't think that it is referencing this foundational element of our salvation, justification. There are other elements actually too that we haven't discussed that are foundational, things we cannot take into our hands and by trying harder or by doing or working, we cannot achieve salvation. Remember, it's 100% God's provision to us that cannot be improved upon or advanced. Thank the Lord. Now, perhaps this is obvious to you. I just want to be sure that we don't understand this passage to mean that we are responsible to accomplish or maintain our salvation. That is our justification, our rightness with God, our obtaining His faithfulness, that hope of eternal life. That's a work of God alone. And by the way, there's, as I said, so much other scripture that speaks to this. Much of that other scripture is by the same author, Paul the Apostle. It's very much a Pauline theology that we're working out here. So then we need to ask the question, what does this mean? Hang on, I don't want to do that yet. <clears throat> so far, we've really just covered the very base, basics of what it does not mean. Again, there's much more to it. But what does it mean? Work out your salvation. Well, our salvation has elements of what God has done, as we have been looking at. It has elements of what God is doing. And it also has elements of what God will do. One day, we will be transformed completely and fully saved, if you will, by the power of God alone. But think about the middle one up here, the now, the present life. And I think this is the focus of the command, right? As we reflect upon those things we've been looking at, what God has done, well, we then work that out in our thinking and our living today. Perhaps you could think of it as applying your salvation, making it visible or tangible perhaps. What does that look like? Well, it's bringing forward so many principles of godly worldview and thinking and then principles of godly living and acting and think about our context here. Remember, we've talked about it even this morning. Working out of our salvation begins by taking that attitude of Christ. And then, well, in that attitude, we are humbling ourselves toward one another, seeking unity in the body of Christ, prioritizing love and care for one another. And as we work this out, salvation is worked out in us. Think for a minute about a butterfly. A butterfly starts out as an ugly and grounded caterpillar. Pretty much all he can do is crawl, hope to have enough nutrients close enough to where he is to survive and try to stay out from, someone, out from under someone's foot. At some point, this caterpillar's, in this caterpillar's life, there is a metamorphosis. A massive change takes place. From a creepy, crawly, limited, ugly worm, he has been changed in, the, in, in very essence, in nature of who he is, to a beautiful flying insect. 
Now, if you told that butterfly to work out his butterflyness, you don't, I guess that's really not a word, but I, I kind of liked it. Work out his butterflyness. Does that mean he needs to take steps and actions to be sure he doesn't return to being a caterpillar? Does that mean that he needs to muster up the power and the mental capability to transform himself somehow? I would think that it would be asking the butterfly to make the most of his butterflyness, if you will, to learn how to fly well, how to find good flower nectar, how to stay out of the way of car windshields, how to float on the breeze and show off his wings. Work it out. What does it mean? What does it look like for you to be a beautiful butterfly? Well, what does it look like for you to be a Christian? Literally, little Christs making salvation visible, tangible, real. What is the outworking of being saved by grace and loved by God? Keep in mind, particularly in our context, that we are living out our salvation. It is brought to bear in relationship. Listen to Moses Silva on this passage. He says, The outworking of the believer's personal salvation takes the form of corporate obligations within the Christian community, the duty of seeking the good of others. Now take note, as we do this, we not only affect those around us, but we change, we grow, we advance. God does the work of saving us. Work out what it means for you to be a Christian. To be a butterfly means something quite different than to be a creepy, crawly, ugly caterpillar, doesn't it? I think there's one other element that I'd like to add to this, if you will, or connect to it. And that is the, um, the, if you think about the thinking capacity of a butterfly, it's pretty limited, isn't it? Well, we have the ability to learn to study, to discuss, to grow in knowledge. Working out our salvation, I think, includes learning. It includes studying, specifically learning about God and how he saves us, what it means to be saved, and so many other areas of theology that necessarily impact our daily lives. As we grow in knowledge and humble ourselves, we gain wisdom. Wisdom for what? Well, now we've come back around. Wisdom for living, for acting, for loving. And salvation is worked out. Now, all this that we are discussing is supposed to be done with fear and trembling or obedience, with deep reverence and fear, you might say. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to love God, but also to fear God. You might say... It's awe and reverence combined with love and trust. Awe and reverence combined with love and trust. With the right attitude toward God, our priorities will stay better aligned. The fear of the Lord is a good way to dispel those issues of selfishness and conceit, isn't it? Out of the previous section. Now, we've been noticing the tension between the human element and the divine element in a small way, really, as we discuss this salvation experience. It's an intentional juxtaposition of the two parts in the passage, 
ours and God's in salvation. Now, in verse 12, we've largely seen the emphasis on the human part. We come into, the, into verse 13, and we shift back with an emphasis onto God's part again. God does not just initiate salvation, kind of seal the deal and then remove himself until the end, until glorification. No, I think God is currently involved. He is the one who is working in you. We're not on our own. Isn't that, that's, that's encouraging. We're not on our own. We're not left to luck or fortune or limited power or to the family or context you happen to be dropped in. We're not left on our own to suffer in sin. He is empowering and transforming even now. Now what does it say? Verse 13, God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, two things that I see there he is giving. The will, that is the desire, and secondly, the work or to accomplish. It's the power to do what ultimately equals his good pleasure. So not only does the ability to work, the power to do it come from him, but he's given the desire to do it, to live it out. Now just to clarify, we are not talking about justification, that finished work of salvation in Christ. We're not talking about glorification or other parts that might be considered fundamental elements of our salvation. We are talking about the doing and the being today and tomorrow and next year and the rest of your life. The living out, the working out of our salvation, which if we're taking verse 12 seriously, it's part of our salvation. Now I haven't said this word yet, but now is the time to throw it out. I think what we are after here in verse 12 and 13, it's the part of our salvation that we often call sanctification sanctification so we are called we're justified we're forgiven we're reconciled sealed by the holy spirit given hope of glorification and other things these elements are done they're finalized in grace and some will be done at some point but there is also the progressive element of our salvation and that's sanctification it's not completed it's in progress I know you, if you don't like that word progressive, move it away from that other context. It's a good, a good context for it here. It's in progress. Well, what is sanctification exactly? It's sanctifying. It's making holy. It's separating us from the ways of the world and from sin. It's growth. It's progression into what we were designed to be. It's transformational. Now, sanctification takes place as we learn what it means to be saved. Remember that knowledge part, that theology part. And as we put that to work, as we live it out. Well, how do we do that then? According to verse 13, by his empowering. Notice, and I'm reiterating some here, that this process of needed sanctification in our lives is symbiotic. That is, both God and you are involved in your growth. Now, you could add to that other things, namely the Christian body, the, the church. But Paul says to work it out. In other words, our part is to respond to God in submission, to do, 
to practice, to discipline ourselves, to repent when needed, to seek humility that we might know the path of growth. Somehow get after it. Live out your salvation. Work out your salvation. And then remember, God is behind and under all of this sanctifying process. After all, who designed the butterfly and gave it its wings? Who put in the heart of the butterfly the desire to take flight? Who gave the butterfly the energy and the ability to fly? And yet, didn't the butterfly have to stretch its wings and take that first step? The butterfly had to try. The butterfly had to practice and had to submit to the maker's ways. Through this symbiotic relationship, true transformation takes place. Well, now that we're getting on toward lunchtime, I want you to think about a good pot of stew. You know, you can think about beef stew or venison stew or vegetarian. Is there such a thing as vegetarian stew? Whatever, whatever floats your boat. That before you had a stove in your house, you had to cook this stew in a pot over a fire. Which, by the way, in my opinion, makes some of the best stew. For you to end up with the product that you want, things have to be done. In other words, you need to gather the ingredients. You need to measure, unless you're Debbie Rogers, you, you've long gotten over the measuring part and you know exactly what to put in. You need to chop, you need to cut, you need to add, and then you need to stir periodically, and you need a taste test. Now, it's maybe not an intense project. You don't need a master's degree for it, but it requires consistent and purposeful attention. What else do you need? Well, you need a fire. You need heat. You need power to change those cold, hard, raw ingredients into something very different and delicious. You need cooking capability, transformational power, the power of the fire. If you don't have fire, you have raw meat, cold water with spices floating on the top of it, and you have hunger. If you don't have the elements of the cook, the gathering, the cutting, the adding, the stirring, the testing, you have a raging fire, a warm but empty stew pot, and you have hunger. You need the power and the work of the fire. And you need the appropriate ingredients and attention. You need both. It's symbiotic. In sanctification, I think it's similar. We need to work out our salvation. We need to apply diligence and attention and discipline. We need to humble ourselves and jump out and do. But we also see that God is behind it all, giving the desire to try, to learn, to change. It's God giving the power to actually accomplish, to grow, and to be sanctified. Again, we should say, praise Him and thank Him. Amen? Now, as I think about this symbiotic process, well, it can go either way. Sanctification can take place consistently and progress is made. Growth happens in your Christian life. Conversely, sanctification can be very minimal over the course of a lifetime. Now, there's a lot of detail to work out there what, as far as what I'm saying, but 
Think about God. Sometimes I think about Him very willing and able, all-powerful, not only to place a desire in you for growth, but to assist, indeed, really more than assist, to be the working power behind your doing, behind your obeying. In some cases, God is waiting. Now, He doesn't tend to force us to action. He may lovingly prod, even discipline us, that we would respond. But it's when we willingly, humbly turn to Him that He grows us, He sanctifies us. So it's in obedience, a word out of verse 12, and backing up into what Christ did in His example, that we work out our salvation, that we find and experience growth, sanctification, We are a part of that in our salvation. Now, if you don't humble yourselves, submit to Him and seek Him and all that that means, it won't happen. If we don't discipline and practice and just start loving that person that's hard to love or whatever it might be, you may be stuck in a sense. Yes, you are saved. You are justified. You have hope in heaven. But what about the growth that God desires for you? What about the best for your life? What about the joy and the peace that can be yours? What about the love and the unity of the body that you were to experience? What about the relationship with Him, the God of the universe? I think it'd be a sad state of affairs to miss this wonderful part of our salvation, necessary part. I think we need to reflect on the almost unbelievable humility of Christ in the previous hymn. Then we turn to God in humility of mind. God is willing and able, but we have a part to play for that wonderful meal of a well-cooked stew that smells good, that tastes great, that satisfies the body and warms the soul. I want you to just listen to a story, a story that many of you know, at least in part, it's just, a, it's just a, the life of John Newton. It serves as a reminder of salvation, part of which is sanctification. John Newton was nurtured by a Christian mother who taught him the Bible at an early age, but he was raised in his father's ways after she died of tuberculosis when Newton was seven. At age 11, Newton went on his first of six sea voyages with a merchant navy captain. Newton lost his first job in a merchant's office because of unsettled behavior and impatience of restraint, a pattern that would persist for years. He spent his later teen years at sea before he was pressed aboard the HMS Harwick in 1744. Newton rebelled again against the discipline of the Royal Navy and deserted. He was caught, put in irons, and flogged. He eventually convinced his superiors to discharge him to a slaver ship. Espousing free-thinking principles, he remained arrogant and insubordinate, and he lived with moral abandon. I sinned with a high hand, he later wrote, and it made me, it, I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. 
He took up employment with a slave trader named Clow, who, who owned a plantation of lemon trees on an island off of West Africa. But he was treated cruelly by Clow, and soon Newton's clothes turned to rags, and he was forced to beg for food to allay his hunger. The sailor <clears throat> was transferred to the service of the captain of the Greyhound, a Liverpool ship, in 1747. And on its homeward journey, the ship was overtaken by an enormous storm. Newton had been reading Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, and he was struck by a line in the book about the uncertain continuance of life. He also recalled a passage in Proverbs that speaks of wisdom, and it says, Because I have called you and you have re refused, I also will laugh at your calamity. Well, he converted during the storm, though he admitted later, I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word. Newton then served as a mate and then as a captain of a number of slave ships, hoping as a Christian to restrain the worst excesses of the slave trade. After leaving the sea for an office job in 1755, Newton held Bible studies in his Liverpool home. Influenced by both the Wesleys and George Whitfield, he became increasingly disgusted with the slave trade and his role in it. He quit, was ordained into the Anglican ministry, and in 1764 took a parish in Olney in Buckinghamshire. In 1769, Newton began a Thursday evening prayer service. For almost every week's service, he wrote a hymn to be sung to a familiar tune. Newton later combined 280 of his own hymns with 68 of William Cowper's in what was to become the popular only hymn book. Among the well-known hymns in it are, of course, Amazing Grace, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God, and There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. In 1787, Newton wrote... Thoughts upon the African slave trade to help William Wilberforce's campaign to end the practice, a business at which my heart now shudders, he wrote. Recollection of that chapter in his life never left him, and in his old age, when, he was, when it was suggested that the increasingly feeble Newton retire, he replied, I cannot stop. What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? Toward the end of his life, he uttered these words. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. So it's a testimony like this that shows, of course, the salvation of God that saved John Newton. Some dark night on a ship in the high seas. But then that symbiotic process of growth as Newton submitted his life to his Savior, a merciful Savior, by the way, God then did a great work of sanctification over the years, transforming John Newton into someone new. In Ephesians chapter 2, following the clear teaching that we were saved through faith by God's grace extended and not through any works that we have or could do, is this statement out of verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So, along with John Newton, 
we come in humility, never forgetting that I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And then we can work out our salvation in the life and the relationships that you've been given.